Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. And this is London, but of course, coming to you all over the world, thanks to the wonders of Al Gore's invention, otherwise known as the Internet. Now, it's going to be a packed show, so I'm going to speak for a little less time than normal. Just to lay out the subjects we'll be discussing this evening, uh, the most important of which is the 75th anniversary of the dropping of the atomic bomb on Hiroshima. An important event, a world-changing event, and an auspicious number, 75. The actual anniversary is on Thursday, uh, but we are giving it a full treatment tonight with Dr. Francis Boyle from the United States, an expert not just about nuclear weapons, but about the law as governed or not governed the hideous weaponry that can end the entire world, the entire existence of not just human species, but all species on the planet. It, uh, I have been myself, I've spoken in Hiroshima and in Nagasaki. I don't know which anniversary it was. It may even have been the 60th. Uh, I was on a speaking tour of Japan and I have never forgotten uh, the ominous feeling, a bit like being on Elm Street in Dallas, the feeling of foreboding uh, that one has when present there and remembering uh, that day when the United States dropped the first atomic bomb ever dropped in human history. And days later, uh, the second uh, on uh, Nagasaki. Nagasaki's bomb was entirely unnecessary, even within the terms of the military uh, case uh, that the United States might have been able to make for dropping the bomb on Hiroshima. After all, they said uh, they would have had to fight island to island. They would have had to fight their way right up the entirety of Japan, house to house. The Japanese were a fanatical enemy ready to fight to the death to defend the warmongering emperor and all of those arguments have at least some military basis for argumentation. But the second one had none because Japan was already not just on its knees but flat on its back after the dropping of the first bomb. The dropping of the second bomb had much more to do with what they imagined to be the world war to come. It was dropped to terrify the then Soviet Union with the United States earth-shattering, earth-changing atomic power. Uh, that uh, monopoly on nuclear weapons, of course, didn't last for very long. Uh, thanks to people inside 
the scientific community and inside the British intelligence services, sorry to bring it up, lads, uh, who felt that uh, a nuclear monopoly uh, by one superpower was really not a good idea, it was a profoundly dangerous and unhealthy idea. And so they leaked the US atomic secrets to the Soviet Union and very quickly, within uh, not that many years, five years, four years, the Soviet Union had the nuclear bomb also and a long period of nuclear stalemate. Kept the peace, as we used to keep being told, for many decades thereafter. And, of course, as the 20th century wore on, uh, we negotiated treaties to limit uh, the number of nuclear weapons, which by then had become hundreds of times more powerful than the bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But those two are increasingly called into question by the unilateralism of the United States government under Donald Trump, which has ripped up more treaties than I have time to talk about this evening and may very well be about to trigger another nuclear arms race, another nuclear free for all. So we'll be talking, of course, uh, about that. But we cannot ignore the unsealing of what will come to be known as the Ghislaine Maxwell Papers, though to be fair, they should be known as the Jeffrey Epstein Ghislaine Maxwell Papers, uh, because she was a co-conspirator, allegedly, with him in the wholesale rape of young girls and the sexual procurement of underage girls and their trafficking across state lines and indeed across national boundaries, even here in London. Uh, Victoria Jufre, for example, is alleged in the papers uh, to have been trafficked out of the United States while still a child to London where she was forced by Jeffrey Epstein, allegedly, with the collusion, collaboration of Ghislaine Maxwell to sleep with a member of the British royal family, which, if true, uh, would mean uh, the crime of rape had been committed, uh, because it is said, it is alleged, uh, that the same prince slept with the same girl in the United States and in the American Virgin Islands. And if that was true, uh, then that prince would be guilty of rape. So it doesn't get much more serious than that, except Prince Andrew is actually a bit player compared to the luminaries who are revealed in these papers uh, to have been almost certainly filmed having illicit, illegal sex with minors and that that information was then used to blackmail them for financial, maybe, or political, maybe, purposes. And those included, according to the Victoria Jufre testimony, a Spanish president. Now, Spain doesn't have a president, of course. It has a king. But it does have a prime minister. And that prime minister is in uh, the Epstein Black Book. His name was Aznar, and he was a war criminal. 
in the Iraq war alongside Tony Blair and George W. Bush. And it appears he was a close associate of Epstein Maxwell. So the Spanish president uh, that Victoria Jufre refers to could, of course, have been him. I should say that Prince Andrew denies these allegations. He's not sweating uh, over these revelations. As a matter of fact, he can't sweat, as he told us in his ill-advised interview with the BBC. But if he could sweat, he might sweat over the fact that the ante has been upped by the releasing of these papers. And Ghislaine Maxwell is now in a very difficult place between a rock and a hard place. She's behind the eight ball. She's in prison at least until next summer. And if found guilty of the charges under which she is arraigned, she'll go to prison for between 35 and 40 years. In other words, for the rest of her life. So she has a very powerful incentive to tell the prosecutors what they would like to know. That presupposes that the prosecutors really would like to know it. And that is also an open question. We'll be talking to Garland Nixon, an American broadcaster of note, a journalist and a man who knows the law because, well, he used to be a police officer. He's one of my favorite people in the United States. And we'll be asking him about the impact of the Epstein-Maxwell papers being unsealed. But we can't avoid the smell of formaldehyde. Each new week brings yet another video, testimony or evidence uh, that Joe Biden is quite gaga. So much so uh, that uh, one of his putative vice presidential candidates was forced to roll her eyes on television this week as he literally babbled incoherently. He also appeared at a community center and announced it as quite another community center. And then said, bizarrely, no, that was the community center in which I used to work. But as he's been a congressman, a senator, a vice president of the United States, for as long as most people have been alive, it's difficult to know when he could have worked in a community center and why the name of that community center popped into his head when he was in a quite different community center speaking to people, trying to encourage them to vote to elect him as the president of the United States. Donald Trump's madness, of course, well charted. I'm reading his niece's uh, biography at the moment. No doubt there's a lot of score settling going on. No doubt there's a lot of money uh, to be made uh, by being the president's niece and writing bad things about him. But my goodness, they are very, very bad things. And if even a quarter, if even a tenth of what his niece has to say in this book is true, then, well, I keep saying it, it's really summing up the current state of the United States empire that Joe Biden is fighting Donald Trump for the presidency. Now, I mentioned Florida earlier. It now has more coronavirus cases than the entirety of the European Union. In fact, if Florida was a state, it would be one of the most afflicted states uh, on the planet. But Britain's not far behind. 
And the question is, are we about to get a spike, a so-called second wave, now that everyone, certainly at Brighton, is cheek by jowl on their deck chairs on the beach, and people are more or less willfully disregarding social distancing regulations. Mind you, more than half the people in Britain don't understand what the regulations are. And they can be forgiven for that because they seem to change from week to week. They seem to promise but not deliver. The issue of testing and tracking, tracing, all of these things appear to have been almost abandoned and billions spent on them in the process of abandonment. And different parts of Britain are now facing different rules and regulations, leading to the situation where people like Nicola Sturgeon, the First Minister in the Scottish Assembly, uh, telling people from Greater Manchester not to come to Scotland. That's the official position of the SNP administration in the Scottish Assembly, but the madmen of the Scottish nationalist Barmy Army have taken the law into their own hands. They are standing on the England-Scotland border, telling practically the only people in the world who might go to Scotland for a holiday, for a staycation, to get the F out of Scotland. And then they took it to the airports and to the central station in Glasgow, where they held up a banner uh, saying England out of Scotland. If it had said Pakistan out of Scotland, or Ireland out of Scotland, or Asians out of Scotland, well, the banner waivers would already be in jail. They'd be on a charge. Uh, but you can say what you like in Scotland about England, the place where more than 60% of Scotland's exports go to. It's all boiling up north of the administrative border. And as you can tell, I'm deeply interested in that. Well, enough uh, from me. This is episode 59 of the mother of all talk shows. I'm going to count up, maybe tonight, maybe for next week when we get to 60, how many millions of you have watched and listened to this show in the last 59 weeks. I tell you, it's an eye-opener. Honours list announced by... Boris Johnson this week. Harold Wilson's infamous lavender list was outdone uh, by Boris Johnson this week, who gave peerages uh, even to members of his own family. Not so much a lavender list as a lavy list, for those of you who understand Scottish. So the first poll is which of Boris Johnson's family and friends will next get gongs? A, Dominic Cummings. B, Sister Rachel. C, Dad Stanley. My money would be on C because he has served as a member of the European Parliament and is a very, very frequent commentator on political affairs. I've even been on Good Morning Britain with him. Uh, that was the time where he uh, recommended uh, um, shooting Irish people. Uh, I'm not making that up. You can go back and see it. So that's poll number one. Which of Boris Johnson's family and friends will next get gongs. Dominic Cummings, Sister Rachel, Dad Stanley. You can vote now on my Twitter feed. More on that honours list late, later. Garland Nixon, 
uh, my old friend, a radio talk show host and political analyst, should be on the line now. I hope so. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Garland, thank you very much indeed for joining us again. Let's start with the Epstein-Maxwell affair, can we? Because we can smell it from here. <laughs> yes, and might I add, I have resurfaced on uh, Radio Sputnik. I'm co-hosting a show called The Critical Hour with Dr. Wilmer Leon, Monday through Friday from 6 to 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You Fantastic. know, what's, I tell you, I tell you what I find interesting about the Epstein, um, the saga, and that is that more, uh, whenever information comes out, we find out more and more that the United States government was involved in covering it up. Sure, there was a lot of information about particular Bill Clinton, Prince Andrew, et cetera. But what I find interesting is the dog that didn't bark, what the media doesn't talk about. They'll talk about the kind of People magazine, Globe kind of stuff. But the reality is, once again, we see that 2000. 2008, 2011, the FBI, the uh, Justice Department knew what was going on and made assertive efforts to cover it up. And might I also um, let me point my uh, point our listeners go to my Twitter account at Garland Nixon. I had I put up a um, an article from NBC, actually NBC, where they interviewed a guy named Michael Ryder, who was the chief of police for the Palm, uh, the, the uh, Palm Beach, Florida Police Department, where he said in 2005 and 2006, the government was intervening to, to, to uh, you know, put the fritz on this case. That's what I find interesting, more so than all of the people, that these were state actors supporting this activity. Yes, uh, I mean, it seems to me inescapable. I've made this point before. Uh, when you see the efforts made by the state, deep state of the United States, to uh, protect this man, to stop his prosecution, and when you see the uh, absolute stellar list of political people who were, uh, for some unexplained reason, uh, completely drawn like bees to a honeypot uh, to this unexceptional man, Jeffrey Epstein. It's quite, quite clear to me, adding one and one, uh, I get two. Uh, it's quite obvious that this was an intelligence operation that Epstein was running. 
Absolutely. And that in, in all likelihood, these powerful figures were ushered towards Jeffrey Epstein. This was set up. It, isn't it interesting that the exact allegations of the steel of the now debunked steel dossier, that there was compromise on um, Donald Trump happens to be, you know, projection to what was really going on with the with the intel regarding uh, regarding Epstein. And again, if you look at the names, when people look at, well, Bill Clinton was involved, they think of the, you know, the, the racy part of it, the sexy. Oh, my gosh, he was involved in pedophilia, the things he was involved in. Here's what I think. Bill Clinton is still a very powerful figure in American politics today, in the Democratic Party today. When Bill Clinton speaks, people in America listen, particularly in the Democratic Party. So right now, if those allegations are true and someone is holding tapes, videotapes on Bill Clinton right now, they own him. They absolutely own him. And he is a powerful figure right now. So when you look at those names that are on the list, what they did was wrong. And that's certainly one aspect of this. But right now, that means there are that means that when you hear Bill Bill Clinton speak, you don't know if it's Bill Clinton speaking or you don't know if it's the powerful entities behind Jeff's Jeffrey Epstein saying, Bill Clinton, you better say what we tell you to say or, hey, I'm just saying some video could leak to the Internet tomorrow. Yeah. I mean, were you surprised at Ghislaine Maxwell's suicide next week? Well, you know, I mean, that's pretty much said and done, I think. No, but, uh, you know, all jokes aside, everyone, uh, this is, it's like, uh, really, is there really anyone on this planet that actually believes that Jeffrey Epstein Epstein, uh, committed suicide? And might I add this, knowing that this was an intel operation, then what we also have to know is that this, to some extent, is kabuki theater. To some extent, there is no way that this can be an intel operation. There's no way that the FBI could do the things that they did to to hide this, that we could find out in court documents that the Justice Department was involved in covering this up. And then you're going to believe that the Justice Department, who's prosecuting this right now, is on the up and up. That's absolutely absurd. Well, that's my point, uh, that they cannot possibly allow this uh, to come to a fair trial uh, next summer. Um, They're taking a risk, having refused uh, Ghislaine Maxwell bail uh, in any case, but they have to avoid a trial next summer. Now, that can only be uh, achieved by uh, strictly limiting the charges uh, that will be prosecuted to try and exclude all other matters, but that would require her cooperation because otherwise her counsel uh, could bring onto the floor of the court all kinds of things, or uh, Ghislaine Maxwell's death. Uh, absolutely. So, you know, it, it's it's obvious that either one of two things is going to happen, that either just th- that this is, as I said, that it's kabuki theater, that it's all set up and they know what they're going to do and it's all worked out. Or, of course, unfortunately for Ghislaine Max, that, well, if that ain't the case, then she will, let's face it, her father died in mysterious circumstances. Uh, you know, uh, the guy who ran the white helmets. We know how this game works. You know, it's a very dangerous world. She could just happen to be walking uh, across her cell. The cameras could just happen to go out and she could slip on a banana peel and that's all it's all you know hit her head on something we know how that game goes no uh i said we could smell the uh the epstein maxwell affair we could certainly smell the formaldehyde uh from joe biden he's getting worse isn't he yeah. You know, it's funny when we look right now, when we look at what's going on with American politics and the Democratic Party, if if the election were today, 
they would easily win in a landslide. But the election isn't today. Joe Biden is ahead. But here's the concern I think they have to have. Joe Biden, and, and we, we all know this, Joe Biden cannot debate you, me, he couldn't debate an empty chair, you know, the old, the infamous uh, Clint Eastwood empty chair. The, Joe Biden can't do a debate. So how do the, how does, how does the Democratic Party get to November without Joe Biden doing a single debate? Because they know that if they put him in a debate with anyone, he's going to fall apart. The other thing is this. I'm watching a party saying we're going to sit here and wait for this thing to fall in our lap. We're not going to take assertive actions to win it. We're not going to offer things to the people. We're not going to talk about what we can do. We're going to sit here and hope that it falls in our lap. Well, you know what? The environment may be so that it falls in your lap. But if any black swan events, if anything happens, maybe the coronavirus number starts to, to go back down, maybe something economically happens, whatever the case, if anything goes bad, the Democratic Party has has no assertive power to ensure that they win. That's just not a very wise uh, political strategy, or lack thereof, I might add. No, I, uh, I have serious doubts uh, whether uh, Biden will make it to November. Uh, I study his videos uh, very closely, his basement tapes, and he's definitely getting dramatically worse. Uh, but if he does, and if it does fall into their lap, uh, then whoever is his vice presidential pick is bound to come to the top job in the course of the first term, maybe even the first week or month. Uh, so who is that likely to be Garland? And what national debate is there about the fact that she may just be on the coattails of Biden? I say she because it's guaranteed to be a woman. Uh, but she's going to be the president very quickly indeed. Well, you know, this is this is you know what's portrayed by the neoliberals, what's portrayed by the globalists as diversity is nothing but tokenism. So they're, I suspect Kamala Harris. I suspect that you know they will find their neoliberal globalist conduit and say, well, guess what? At least this neoliberal globalist conduit for power has a little bit of color, has a little bit of melanin in her, in her skin. And I think what they, you know, she doesn't have any background on foreign policy, on on a, a domestic policy. In a broad sense, which is exactly what the powerful people want. I think Joe Biden really fits the bill for the people who really run this thing. They want, they would probably prefer a person that really doesn't know what's going on uh, very well right now, and that would just get out of the way and allow them to do what they do now: write the bills and hand them to the people in the Senate, hand them to the people, or have their lobbyists write them, hand them to the people. And 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 what we would see with a Biden president. If, to some extent, you could argue we're already seeing it with the Trump president. But what we would see is simply a very thin line between the people who actually make the decisions and how and where the decisions are made. They just want somebody that's going to sit in the chair. Kind of this is the way I always put it. When I was a kid, and you may remember this, in America we had these little plastic steering wheel things that the kids could pretend that they were driving while dad was driving the truck. Sure. They want somebody that's going to sit there with the plastic steering wheel so they can drive the truck. <laughs> very good. Image that one. Uh, so if it's Kamala Harris and we get President Kamala Harris with no credentials, I mean, she's a, a lawyer uh, and she's been a prosecutor, uh, but she has never said or done anything on the economy, never said or done anything on foreign affairs. 
what, what would be the hallmark of such a presidency, a Harris well, uh, okay. presidency? Right. It would be what, um, what, what Joe Biden has already said, and that's, that's the plan right now, that nothing will fundamentally change. And as I said, they would prefer Kamala Harris, someone who is a climber, who wants to, come, wants to move up, who wants power, and is really willing to say to the people who write the checks, what do you want me to do, and I'll hold the position. But in reality, there wouldn't—see, that's the point I'm making. In reality, there would be an empty desk. The Oval Office would be a desk, and there would be the people who write the checks the people on Wall Street, the people in Silicon Valley, the people in the military industrial complex, simply saying, you know, almost like a, a puppet, here's what we want you to do, here's what we want you to say, pass these bills. They want someone who's just going to salute and say, yes, sir, or yes, ma'am, and that's what they'll get. Remember, Kamala Harris, when she dropped out, she had a one, she had one percent of the black vote. One percent. It's not like she's bringing you in any particular constituency. California, the people there don't even like her. They just want to put her in there so she'll be quiet. She'll do what she to she's told. And uh, based on Cam Harris's history, I think she's very effective at, at being quiet and doing what she's told. Now, what about our colleague, Governor Jesse Ventura? I thought he was out of the picture, but as I'm coming into work this evening, I read that maybe he's back in. Well, you know, it's, it, it, that, that will be very, very interesting to see Jesse get back in. The last thing in the world that our um, our system wants right now is for someone, you know, to, to come into the picture who actually do, who doesn't uh, uh, preach the neoliberal neocon orthodoxy. I think that Jess, uh, that that uh, Jesse could really upset the apple cart. Um, not that he could win. I don't know. A lot of things would have to ha have to happen because remember, he's got to get two hundred and seventy uh, two. 271 uh, 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 electoral votes. But what he could do now, imagine this guy comes in and takes 10 percent of the vote. If he takes it or or he's now starting to look at numbers, five, eight, 10 percent, double digits. One of the things that would happen, I think uh, it, it would be the two parties would start to come to him and say, Jesse, hey, man, we, we, we want you to drop out and endorse us. And Jesse could say, maybe I will, maybe I won't. What you what is in for me for me? What position? What promises? Not, not that you could really trust these people, but at any rate, if Jesse gets in, I think he becomes a powerful figure, and the the, the people in power would have to quickly acknowledge the number of votes that he would get and the and, and the fact that he could swing the election one way or the other. Yeah, he'd be the only one of the three that you could actually put on a platform and expect to inspire anyone. Yeah, absolutely. Well, absolutely. And that's the problem, that he would say things that you and I would see as normal, that if you look at the the, the polls, here's a guy who would say things like, we're going to bring the, bring the troops home. The polls would all say, yeah, that's a good idea. So the, the parties in power would have to convince the people of America that you don't want what it is that you think that you want. And that would be, um, that would be a daunting task. I hope Jesse gets in. I hope he gets in and, and you know, throws a monkey wrench in it. You have a certain percentage of people in America that are just going to vote for their particular party, regardless of, you know, who's there. But Jesse would, I think, draw a lot of people to the polls that don't normally vote. And that's what I think could change the dynamics of politics in America for a long, long time. Finally, and I'm grateful for your time, as always, Garland, where stands President Trump today? Uh, as you said, if, if the election was tomorrow, uh, he'd definitely lose it. Do you see any possibility that Trump can make a comeback, can win a second term? 
Absolutely. I think people are, you know, making, let's not forget, you know, uh, uh, what was it? Uh, Nate Silver gave Hillary Clinton a 92 or 95 percent chance of winning. There's a long time there in political, you know, years are like the political months are like dog months, right? So we got a couple years in political months before this thing happens. That's why I say the Democrats are making a grand mistake thinking they can sit here and allow the political dynamics to throw everything in their in their direction. What happens if these coronavirus numbers start to subside and go down? What happens if the if, if, if they strike a deal if they, and, and the economy stabilizes somewhat? It could change the dynamics here. Yes, I'm not counting Donald Trump out whatsoever because we have a long time. And as we've seen in the U.S., there's no way of what's going to happen between now and, um, and, and November. Colin Nixon, and I'm very glad you're back on the Sputnik. Nice to talk to you again. Thanks for joining us. That was Garland Nixon, uh, host uh, on Sputnik Radio. He was for a long time, but uh, he's had a brief period uh, out. Which of Boris Johnson's family and friends will get the next gongs? Dominic Cummings, 56. I think that's uh, a pretty good bet. I, I, I would have thought he has a seat in the House of Lords already booked. Uh, sister Rachel, 11. Dad Stanley, 33. Yeah. I think uh, that's uh, pretty reasonable. You can vote now on my Twitter feed, at George Galloway. Uh, Ian says, Dad Stanley deserves Pratt of the Year all the way. And on YouTube, Joanne says, George, I hope we'll have good news about your new child. Well, so do I, Joanne, but thanks. But uh, she's now five days overdue, although it might happen while I'm on air, in which case she's promised to phone in. Once the baby is delivered, of course, safely, I don't think she'll phone in uh, in the midst of labor. Uh, Rene says, is Epstein really dead? Who saw his corpse? And Marvin says, the Epstein case will show how the CIA, Mossad, and other security apparatus benefit from the blackmail info acquired by Maxwell. And Winnie says, hospitals in the US get $30,000 from the government per corona patient. Go figure. If only that were true, Winnie. It's not true, but it's an urban legend that you're, uh, of course, fully sold on. Holly says Hiroshima is just one of the horrific crimes the USA has in their kit bag. And on Facebook, Corey says Maxwell claims she's married, but refuses to name the husband. Could she be married to Andrew in order not to testify against him. Now, I've heard some conspiracy theories in my time, but that is actually a very good one. A royal wedding that we were never told about. He's free, she's free, they could marry. Maybe Epstein conducted the ceremony, but that would mean she didn't have to testify against him. And Paul says Biden's already picked a VP, but he forgot to write down who it was. And Dennis says Garland Nixon is very perceptive. That's why he's here on the mother of all talk shows. And Joanne says the only job in America that requires null qualifications is the presidency of the United States. Only millions and billions get you in. And on Facebook, Jennifer says, has the world always been like this? Or have I just woken up? Maybe that's why my baby's refusing to come out. And Laney says, God help us if the do-nothing Democrats get in. And Barbie says, oh no, 
They're talking about my country. It's probably bad news. Probably is. Let's take a 60-second break. Uh, now, the SpaceX mission has just landed on Earth. We've got live pictures from the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, the Crew uh, Dragon capsule has parachuted into the sea safely. They've been on a 63-day trip in orbit. And this is the capsule bobbing around in the ocean. Sing hallelujah. Very happy uh, to see that it all ended uh, uh, safely. Now, uh, I need more uh, social media comments, uh, please, uh, while we uh, wait for the next caller. But uh, let me tell you about the poll. Uh, Dominic Cummings, 58, he's up to... He's red hot. I mean, we I mean, shouldn't have had him in there. I mean, there's no man in Britain who is more certain to end up in the House of Lords than uh, Dominic Cummings, 58%. Sister Rachel, she's trailing badly, 11%. Dad Stanley is on 31%. Essentially, because the phone system has crashed briefly, let me tell uh, people who are not in the UK what the House of Lords is. Um, it's very difficult to define, but it's easy to recognize. It is an upper chamber, entirely unelected, that was once stuffed with the putrefying living corpses of the British aristocracy, uh, but is now stuffed with something far, far smellier. It is stuffed with uh, donors uh, to the political parties, flatmates of the political leadership at any particular time in the country, former lovers, former spouses of the political leaders. In the case now of Boris Johnson, his own brother, who resigned from Johnson's government in protest at the way his brother was doing things, but has come back to government for the rest of his life without ever having to face election again. They get £450, so well over $500 per day. Per day, all they have to do is show up. They get subsidised food, subsidised alcohol. It's a very convivial uh, terrace overlooking the uh, River Thames. I got married on it, actually. Uh, eight years ago this summer, coming up for exactly eight years ago. Uh, it is a very nice place to work with deep red carpets and deep red leather upholstery. And uh, nobody uh, does uh, any kind of quality control. Uh, we've had members of the House of Lords uh, having hookers sniff cocaine uh, off their torsos uh, we've had uh, hookers themselves in uh, the House of Lords, uh, and I mean male as well as female. We've had crooks, literally criminals, who've gone to prison and then come out of prison and went back into the House of Lords. Those of you who are not in the UK are probably scratching your heads as to why a mature democracy in the 21st century could possibly allow half of its legislature to be so constituted.
People ask me if I would go in the House of Lords, and of course the answer to that is no. Uh, but I'm against anybody going into it. And when I look at the list that Boris Johnson has just ennobled, if that's the word, not much nobility there, I must say, uh, I despair, not at the cynicism of the political class making these appointments, because they can get away with them, uh, but at the absolute failure of the fourth estate in the land, the newspapers, uh, the broadcast media, to hold this kind of corruption, because that's what it is, uh, to account. Uh, they are more responsible than the cynical prime minister who wrote out the list. Cynical prime ministers are going to do what cynical prime ministers do. It's us who are to be blamed for not bringing a halt to it. If I went out now and began campaigning for the abolition of the House of Lords, it wouldn't get much traction. But if I raised the issue of J.K. Rowling's honest insistence that men are men and women are women, whoa! Watch out for the incoming political correctness and identity politics, liberalism. They are the big issues in Britain today, not the fact that we are governed by such an antique and no longer even remotely quaint system of government. Now, Dr. Francis Boyle is an eminent human rights lawyer professor of international law, and he knows plenty about the uh, law uh, which relates to the use or threat of use uh, of nuclear weapons. Uh, he actually drafted the US domestic implementing legislation for the Biological Weapons Convention, known as the Biological Weapons Anti-Terrorism Act of 1989 that was approved unanimously by both houses of the US Congress and signed into law by President Bush the first. He's written about the criminality of the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in his book, The Criminality of Nuclear Deterrence. I think we should talk to him, don't you? Dr. Boyle, thank you very much uh, for joining us. It's an auspicious occasion. 75 years uh, since the double attack, really. Hiroshima was first, Nagasaki thereafter. What do you say to those that would argue that the first bomb, at least, was militarily justifiable when balanced against uh, the huge loss of life amongst US service personnel that might have been expected if Japan had had to be invaded. Well, thank you very much for uh, having me on, George, and my best to your uh, audience. Uh, well, I have two points. First, the uh, atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki were war crimes, even as defined by the United States government itself as of 1945. And second, the Japanese were uh, desperately trying to surrender 
on condition that their uh, emperor Hirohito be not tried as a uh, war criminal. So this was uh, well known to uh, President Truman before he made the decision to drop the bombs. After the two bombs were dropped, he then said, well, okay, we'll, uh, we'll accept the uh, Japanese surrender and they can keep their uh, emperor and we won't put him on trial as a war criminal. So that could have clearly uh, been done before the bombs were dropped. So the uh, uh, dropping of the bombs had uh, little to do with the uh, end of World War II. And I say that my uh, father uh, had volunteered uh, for combat with the Marine Corps after Pearl Harbor and invaded Saipan, Tinian, and Okinawa. And then uh, he trained to uh, invade mainland Japan, where he was scheduled to be among the first troops uh, ashore because of his uh, combat experience. Uh, but that that didn't happen. Certainly, I had grown up with the assumption that uh, uh, the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki had uh, saved my father's life and the life of other men uh, uh, scheduled to invade. But when I began to study uh, international relations, uh, uh, in college, I realized this was uh, simply uh, a myth that was sold to the uh, uh, American people to justify these uh, hideous weapons that exterminated about uh, 200,000 uh, completely innocent civilians um, and uh, were war crimes uh, under the uh, Nuremberg Charter of uh, August 8, 1945. And also, even in accordance with the United States Department of War Field Manual of uh, 1940, that the United States government had uh, revised uh, in in preparation, uh, expectation that it it was going to uh, enter into uh, World War II, and the significance of all this today is the myth of Hiroshima and Nagasaki uh, being used to sell these uh, uh, hideous uh, weapons of uh, extermination that uh, still exist today. As you know, George, I was there in um, Greenock, Scotland, uh, to help defend the uh, three women who destroyed that uh, tender uh, servicing the uh, UK uh, Trident II nukes that uh, we gave to the UK here from the United States and made quite extensive use of uh, Nuremberg and international law uh, to get uh, four outright directed verdicts in favor of each of the uh, of the three of them. So this is these issues have been uh, argued actually in uh, Scottish courts there yeah. at uh, Greenock. I, I myself was arrested uh, protesting outside the Faslane uh, nuclear weapons base. I was uh, thrown into Greenock jail, which is not a place you ever want to hang out, I can assure you. I can smell the blanket I requested still. Uh, but let's go back. Uh, you, you say it was illegal at the time, Doctor. Was that because, in today's parlance, it was a weapon of mass destruction. It was indiscriminate. It was fired at civilians. And it was a weapon unlimited uh, by time, by space. 
Uh, it would continue to kill many years, decades later. And of course, when the wind blew, uh, it uh, automatically took the death on the wind. Well, George, the, the most important uh, point to keep in mind here is this. Um, the first Trump bomb was dropped uh, uh, August 6, 1945. As I said, it was completely uh, unnecessary. On August 8, 1945, uh, the five uh, uh, victorious powers of the Second World War uh, in Europe signed the London Agreement there in London uh, on August 8th, two days after the uh, uh, bombing of Nagasaki, uh, sorry, of Hiroshima, in which it said quite clearly that a Nuremberg war crime is, quote, the wanton destruction of cities, towns, or villages, unquote. Let me repeat that. A Nuremberg war crime, this is uh, Article 6, Paragraph B of the Nuremberg Charter, says the wanton destruction of cities, towns, or villages is a Nuremberg war crime, like what the Nazis did. Uh, and we prosecuted Nazis for that. So that was August 8th, two days after destroying uh, Hiroshima. And the very next day, they bombed Nagasaki, uh, another wanton destruction of, uh, of a city. So even in accordance with their own law at the time, and the United States government drafted the uh, uh, Nuremberg Charter. If you're interested, there's a book by uh, Persico called uh, Nuremberg uh, explaining this. Uh, even in accordance with their own law, uh, this was a Nuremberg war crime, uh, exactly like what we tried the Nazis for at uh, Nuremberg. Um, and uh, indeed, uh, General Curtis LeMay, who was in charge of this, and Bob McNamara, who was on uh, his staff at the time, later Secretary of Defense, basically said if, if we had uh, lost the war, we would have been tried for war crimes. Indeed, it is interesting if you read the Tokyo Charter that was not an international agreement, but was simply imposed by the United States itself uh, under its authority as a uh, belligerent occupant under the laws of war, to prosecute the uh, Japanese uh, war criminals, the Tokyo uh, Charter eliminated, borrowed almost uh, lock, stock, and barrel from the Nuremberg Charter, except it eliminated the language wanton destruction of cities, towns, or villages. Because obviously then people would have asked, well, you know, how can you uh, prosecute Japanese war criminals for the wanton destruction of cities, towns, and villages? after you blew up Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Yeah. So this is the case of the uh, dog that didn't bark there, uh, uh, George. And in his uh, dissenting opinion to the uh, Tokyo judgment, and I have all this authority in, in my uh, book, Criminality of Nuclear Deterrence, with footnotes, uh, Judge Powell from India uh, said quite clearly that the uh, Japanese uh, defendants had nothing to their discredit along the lines of the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which were Nazi acts. And again, if you read the Nuremberg Charter, uh, the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki were clearly uh, Nazi acts. I also go through chapter and verse 
U.S. Uh, War Department 2710 of 1940, the United States government was contemplating getting into the Second World War, and its uh, uh, war manual on the laws of war uh, went back to the First World War. And so they revised the entire uh, manual uh, and in there uh, incorporated rules on uh, aerial warfare that basically went back to the uh, Hague draft rules of aerial warfare uh, in the mid to late uh, 1920s and put it right in there uh, as binding on United States uh, armed forces for aerial warfare uh, during World War II. And that manual uh, was then uh, updated, uh, I believe it was in the uh, fall of uh, 1944 uh, in contemplation of uh, war crimes uh, prosecutions. So I won't go through all the uh, provisions here of U.S. War Department uh, Field Manual 2710 of 1940, but it's all there in my yeah. book, and I go through so all fantastic. of them, and it's quite clear these were war crimes. Fantastic book. Dr. Francis Boyle, author, amongst many other fine works, of criminality, of nuclear deterrence. Thank you for joining us uh, on the mother of all talk shows. Let's take a quick break. Let's take uh, some calls. Uh, I think uh, Richard first uh, in Concord because we want a Jesse Ventura update. Is he available, Richard? Richard? Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. And uh, I had uh, all but written off uh, Jesse Ventura, but it seems like he's back in the frame. That's, that's the feeling that a lot of folks were, were definitely having as well, you know. Um, I'm assuming you caught it at this point, but when Jesse was on Holland Cooks on Friday, he made it very clear he's aware of our movement now. And he even said he agreed with our message about needing to break apart the duopoly. Yeah, I mean, his point is that uh, America has never needed an independent candidate more uh, than it does right at this moment. And if that's true, how does he answer the question that he himself poses? If not me, who? Yeah, I, I can't agree with you more. I can't think of a better option at this point. So it was really great to see some positive support on his end. We're, we're planning some more ways to engage uh, Jesse's community directly because uh, that, that full-page ad that we took out in his local newspaper seems to have really caught his attention. And when we looked into some history, it appears that pressure within Jesse's local community is what convinced him to run for governor in 1998 after making some similar promises that summer. Now, uh, just for those not as familiar with Governor Jesse yeah. Ventura as you and I, uh, summarize what would he bring to the race? Well, at this point, Jesse Ventura would be bringing into the race a strong voice against the establishment, someone who's not afraid to call out the corruption within the two major parties and is not afraid to recognize when other folks have a good solution that needs to be heard. You know, one of, one of the moments in Jesse's political career that really made him take off when running for governor was when he admitted that this really specific question about an iron workers union was not something that the voters were interested in, but something that he could learn about in order to make sure that he makes the right decision. And, well, the audience in that debate went wild because it was finally a politician admitting that, look, 
we don't know all of these tiny little details, but if we're willing to listen to our constituents, we can do the right thing. Uh, and that's something that the United States desperately needs at this point. We have two right-wing candidates running for office, and our country's on the verge of a civil war. Well, you have two right-wing uh, candidates, neither of whom uh, appears to be entirely in control of their faculties. Uh, Jesse Ventura, on the other hand, a former Navy SEAL, uh, a, a veteran of the Vietnam War, so not a young man, uh, is uh, physically and mentally vibrant. Yeah, he's, um, he's got the platform that matches, too. You know, he's kept up with the times. It seems like Joe Biden's campaigning like we're in the 1980s. Uh, Jesse Ventura is more than willing to recognize what things need to change. And we're hungry for it. If, if folks want to help us out, right now we're trying to prove to Jesse that he can still get in the race and win. So we're having people pledge to be electors in order to qualify Jesse um, on the ballot to either be an independent or to be a write-in, depending on the states. And so if, if folks want to look into that and want to help us out, check it out at draftjesse.com. We need all the volunteers that we can who are willing to be pledged electors for the fall. Draftjesse.com. Everyone go to that, please, and uh, give your support to my friend, Governor Jesse Ventura. Richard, thanks for the update. Ehab is in Michigan, uh, and he wants to talk about the pandemic and its impact on the economy. Ehab, welcome back to the show. Thank you, George. How are you today? By the grace of God, I'm good. Thank you. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, so with the uh, pandemic, uh, perhaps one of the things that is being um, underestimated is uh, or are the policies of lean economics uh, that were uh, or part of the medical system in the United States. Uh, Lean economics is uh, try to squeeze as many dollars as you can out of a single dollar, no matter uh, what things you take off the table when it comes to health care. So that's why hospitals were pretty much uh, denuded of uh, medical equipment, of uh, enough beds, of enough things. And so that led to the cry at the beginning because people already knew that that can happen at any time if uh, the medical uh, the healthcare system was not uh, fully funded or was not being uh, adequate enough to get people into the doors. Uh, and that's the why the cry was, oh, our, our infrastructure will be overwhelmed. And it has been and overwhelmed in uh, various places. In New York, uh, in Florida at the moment, uh, there are uh, many, many hospitals in Florida at the moment that have no capacity left. Exactly. That's how it was structured, uh, based on lean economics. And, uh, and that ties down with like the fallacy of the capitalist system, which is just making money at all costs, regardless of what the consequences can be for other people. Um, well, you get, you get the government uh, that you deserve, uh, that you vote for, um, it's uh, undoubtedly the case uh, that the, the neoliberal economics has been king uh, in the United States since Reagan uh, and Thatcher, as it was here. Uh, the Reagan-Thatcher era uh, made a major change in thinking about the public realm. 
uh, it was private good, uh, private good, public bad. Uh, and you've, you've never left that behind, and neither have we. Yeah, yeah, that, that's exactly the problem. And, uh, like, the opposition to Medicare for All in the United States or universal health coverage, it's being mounted by mostly by surrogates of big corporations, especially the healthcare industry in the United States, which reaps uh, untold billions of dollars yearly uh, for the minimal um, health care that they can provide. Um, and you know what? Uh, that also, it's like when you commented saying that uh, you get what you wish for. No, you get well, what you vote for, yeah. <laughs> well, again, your vote is a wish, right? <laughs> yeah. It's more than a wish. So, it's, a, it's an actual <laughs> act. Yep. Uh, and so... Looking at at the democratic system in the United States, or the so-called democratic system, let's not forget that it's a representative form of democracy, wherein uh, people put their trust in selected individuals to be their representatives, and um, when those people get to offices, uh, they become different animals. They become uh, creatures of the corporations uh, that direct every... Um, Every law that's being uh, that's being debated, that's being uh, uh, that's being uh, voted sure. for in the Congress. But, but but the point is to change it, uh, Ahab. Uh, if you keep doing the same thing over and over again, uh, please don't expect a different uh, result. Thanks for the call. Got some breaking news, quite disturbing. Uh, we're just hearing that Manchester City Council in the UK has declared a major incident in Greater Manchester due to the increasing COVID-19 infection rates. Gold command meetings of senior figures from the police, local authorities and other agencies have been taking place over the weekend amid concerns that numbers are still going up in the wake of stricter lockdown measures being announced on Thursday night. The worst affected area is Oldham with 58.1% infected people per 100,000 uh, population. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Let's take a call from Julian in Lewis on the south coast of England. Go ahead, Julian. Oh, hi, George. Uh, best wishes to you and your family. Thank you so much. Um, uh, I've got some observations and a couple of questions. Yeah, go uh, on. Some observations very quickly. Before COVID-19, no one in the public had an opinion regarding face masks. Since COVID-19, everyone has an opinion regarding face masks. It has become politicised. But if you look at cited commentary and medical research before it became politicised, stroke COVID-19, there's a huge question regarding both surgical protection from bacterial infection and viral infection. 
And my question is, I'm looking at the Oxford University Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine, and it would appear from them that COVID-19 isn't even an epidemic now, let alone a pandemic. And well, why, why, has Manchester, why has Manchester just declared an emergency, a state of emergency? Uh, well, well, that's a good question. Um, can you show me any evidence to suggest that? Well, I haven't found think, it. Well, I've spent the whole I mean, day you, looking Julian, for that. Julian, are you really saying uh, that the mayor of Manchester, the chief of police of Manchester, the head of the health service in Manchester, all the authorities dealing with the dramatic spike in cases in Manchester, the, are they making it up? Uh, no, no, I'm not saying that at all, George. Uh, I'm, I'm, I spent the entire day looking for data from the northeast on every single English well, I gave you the northwest website. Figure. I gave you the northwest figure. It's now 58.1 per hundred thousand. That looks like a spike to me, Julian. Yeah, but the question is, how does that compare with? the rest of the statistics. You can, you can talk about statistics all you like, but um, you have to compare well, it with the... Julian, two, two of my children live in Manchester, uh, okay. and they are now locked down uh, because yeah. of a state of emergency. And yeah. I find it irritating beyond belief uh, that Julian in Lewis, who's been on the internet and can find no evidence that would justify this, is, is on the national radio making these points. Oh, George, I mean, I'm, I'm George, asking you a George, basic please. question: Are they making it up? Can we not oh, trust? No. Can we not trust the people who've just declared a state of emergency in George, Greater Manchester? Okay. All right, George. Um, that's fine. I, I, I understand your concern, but why don't they provide the statistics that would explain that? But maybe they because don't they feel don't. they've they got don't. to. Maybe they don't feel they they've. Maybe they don't feel that it's a priority for them to convince Julian and Lewis uh, of what they're doing. Well, it's not maybe, about me. It's not maybe, about me. Julian, maybe George, they... It's not about Julian, me. All right, mate, but maybe they just think they're in an emergency and that satisfying your statistical curiosities is not actually a priority for them. I've got a choice, uh, Julian. About, Julian, I've got a choice. Me. It's not about me. It's no, not about, about me. Julian, I've got a it's choice. It's about the numbers. Yeah, I'm all right. At, I'm looking at the... I've got the a choice. Oxford University... Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine. Yeah, uh, I'm good for you. All good for you. Sites. Well, you know, do we trust them or not? Well, I, I trust the people running the health service in Greater Manchester. I have no choice but to trust them. I can believe you okay. or I can believe them. And frankly, okay. frankly, I believe them. All right, then. Oh, no, I, 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 you don't take, take, take truth from me. I'm, I'm just trying to find out what's going on, that's all. Well, that's all I'm asking. Let's let the people who are running the now, from this evening, breaking news, state of emergency in Greater Manchester, let's have a bit of trust in them. That's all I'm saying. Julian, thanks. 
as always, for the argument. Uh, here's poll number two. Should the senior Tory MP arrested over rape claims be suspended? A, yes. B, no. C, be named. You can vote now on my Twitter feed. There you go. That's a controversial one, uh, at least in some quarters. Here's an email. Uh, Roger, if COVID-19 causes a large increase in unemployment, would a reduction in the retirement age be considered to free up jobs for the younger generation, which would also protect the older generation? And on YouTube, Barry says, every shop I've been in for the past two days, nobody was wearing a face mask, and the staff said nothing. Well, every shop I've been in, they were wearing face masks. Where were you, Barry? And Syndicate says Portland police have been attacking protesters way before Bunker Boys stormtroopers showed up. And Roger on Facebook says, thanks uh, so much for awakening our eyes and the eyes of numerous people misled by US propaganda. Honestly, I think the American people deserve a better president. And Jennifer says, the problem is people who call out corruption seem to end up dead. Alison says the House of Lords needs disbanding. It's just an old boys club which has no real purpose anymore. There's a few old girls in it now too, Alison. Let's hear from Julian in London on Hiroshima. Go ahead, Julian. Hello, George. It's another Julian. We're a bit like buses. You wait for one, Julian, yeah. and three come <laughs> along at once. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm actually on my way down to Cornwall, but I wanted to talk about uh, Hiroshima and uh, Dresden. These were two cities that were absolutely demolished uh, by the, the Allies, and the people questioned whether it was necessary or not. But Germany and Japan went on to do very well in the second half of the 20th century. But why have the other countries that have been defeated by the Western powers never done as well as Japan and Germany? Why could that be? Uh, that's a good question. Um, time uh, doesn't uh, allow me to adumbrate too widely on it, but uh, it is galling, to say the least, to me at least, someone of my age, my generation, uh, that the two countries which launched fascist aggression, let's not forget that, it was Japan that attacked the United States of America, not the other way around, and it was Germany that launched its attack on its neighbors uh, and caused uh, the uh, great cataclysm of the Second World War and cost the lives of almost uncountable scores of millions of people. And yet both were uh, actually endlessly rewarded uh, by the United States at the end of the war. Uh, both Japan and Germany were built up uh, by Western capital uh, to be the highly successful capitalist economies that they subsequently became. Germany uh, did not have to invade us, it already dominates us. It dominates the European continent economically and Japan was until comparatively recently, until the rise and rise of China, uh, Japan was the dominant economy in Asia. Uh, maybe they uh, have tried with uh, places like uh, Iraq uh, 
Libya, uh, Afghanistan, or maybe it's that they are still fighting there, really. Uh, these wars have not yet ended, Julian. Uh, maybe that's why uh, there has been no attempt at a martial plan uh, for these countries, because these countries have never accepted defeat. What say you? Well, that's a good point, yeah. The, the struggle continues. The other mystery is that we seem to uh, forgive the Japanese uh, much more quickly than the Germans, but maybe that's just... Uh, the well, that's fans. a good point. I, uh, I have never forgiven them. Uh, I watched a wonderful program the other day. I think it's called Journeys with My Father, uh, mm. a, a young British comedian uh, journeys out with his father, a former theatrical agent, uh, and they go to the bridge on the River Kwai, uh, which I had thought actually was fictional, but turns out to be real, oh, yeah. and was the subject of a very important war film with Alec Guinness. Uh, I have never forgiven them, and a late friend of mine uh, had uh, a Japanese car dealership in Kent, uh, one of the biggest in, in the south of England, and he told me that he used to look at the TV schedule uh, with a sinking feeling every Christmas, because he knew that if the bridge over the River Kwai was on the TV over Christmas, his sales of Japanese cars would be in the, in the toilet uh, for the first month uh, oh, of the year. Oh, so I'm not sure we really have forgiven them. I haven't, anyway. Well said, George. Thanks, maybe Julian. we'll all be driving Iraqi cars one day. Cheers. Well, maybe. God bless you. Safe journey. It's probably time to speak to Dr. Ranjit Brar, our resident Moats medic. Dr. Ranjit, uh, very nice to see you again. It's a pity we never have any good news to discuss, really. Can we start with Manchester? Uh, two of my young sons uh, live there. In fact, they've just gone back there this very day. Uh, what's the basis uh, for this uh, major incident declared tonight? Uh, thanks, uh, George. It's, uh, it's good to be back with you. Um, so, as you know, on, on Thursday, um, uh, a large area uh, of the northwest of England, Manchester and surrounding areas, so that's Bolton, Bury, Manchester, Oldham, Rochdale, um, Salford, Stockport, Thameside, Trafford and Wigan, all of them uh, have been put back into lockdown or a form of lockdown. Um, again, some confusion about that, the way that was announced, quite peremptory, quite short notice. Uh, it did seem that the cases were increasing, particularly in Oldham, though not uniformly across the board. Um, and still, most of those areas have a lower case numbers and a lower case incidence than, for example, Leicester, which is coming out of lockdown. But it was seen that there was an increase in the rate of cases, and that was considered uh, worrying enough um, uh, to justify this in, in the eyes of the government. Some uh, disagreements um, between uh, the local mayor, Andy Burnham, uh, the health minister, Matt Hancock, about exactly how that would play out. A slightly strange suggestion by Matt Hancock live on TV that it was uh, not right for people within that area to see another family from within that area, but it was fine for them to go outside that area and see another family outside that area. So clearly uh, that was contradicted by, by Andy Burnham, and I think later, later corrected. But a lot of confusion and contradictory uh, advice uh, coming. That has characterized the last six months, really, hasn't it, Doctor? It has, and that's partly due to um, 
dissension and division within the government and partly because of the way in which information is spread and disseminated. Um, but it's certainly true to say that uh, if you look overall, so if we look at this pandemic and take a step back and look at the world numbers, since we spoke one week ago, George, a further 2 million cases, and these are test proven cases, uh, have been shown to exist in the world and a further 40,000 deaths. In the world, there are now more than 18,000 test proven cases and 670,000 deaths. Uh, in the United States, that's 4.7 million. But other countries like Brazil are coming up with 2.7 mil million. India, 1.75 million. South Africa um, uh, this week has, has had a massive increase and now showing more than half a million. And South Africa, a country of comparable size, slightly smaller in population to the United Kingdom. So you know, this on a, on a world scale throughout Africa now, throughout uh, Southern America, throughout the uh, United States, um, in many parts of, of Europe still. Uh, this is a pandemic which is very far from going away. Uh, looking at the ONS survey data, which is a bit, um, it's based on the random testing uh, of a large number of participating families, so about 30,000 individuals involved in that testing. Current estimates are that there is an increase uh, overall in Britain, and that basically means that probably we're seeing over 4,000 cases each day, new cases of COVID based on that testing. That's not the numbers that are borne out in the, in the uh, lab-proven testing, but that's based on the random testing of the population, so probably is more representative. And that means actually that the you know, all of our incidents across the country is back, as we worried that it might be, uh, when we don't have very clear sight of where the virus is and we start to reduce the social um, distancing, that essentially the numbers across the board throughout England probably are once again on the increase, slight increase at first, but as we know, that's the way that these increases begin. In Leicester, it was found to be sweatshops, you know, people working in close um, uh, proximity for really less than half the minimum wage, you know, almost semi-slavery conditions. But nevertheless, people working in very close proximity were responsible for outbreaks. In the Northwest situation, I think it's principally driven by, by uh, families. And there was, you know, Andy Burnham quite specifically said this was multi-generation families. And when questioned, do you mean Muslim families? He said, yes. Um, but, you know, it's anyone who's living in crowded conditions in close proximity who has the virus, we know is very likely to, uh, to, to pass it on to other people. So without talking about different communities and the different ways in which we live, though we've talked about that before, it's very clear that those who are relatively poor are more vulnerable because they cannot socially isolate. If you're living on the streets, you can't socially isolate. If you're sofa surfing on someone's home, you can't socially isolate. If you're in a job that forces you to go and stack shells in Tesco uh, for 12 hours a day in close proximity to uh, uh, you know, large numbers of customers, you can't socially isolate. If you're driving a bus, you can't socially isolate. If you're working in a hospital, it's hard for you um, to, to have those measures, though you probably have the best access to PPE, inadequate as that has been. So there are a huge number of people who cannot isolate from, from, from the condition. So, you know, what we should have learned, and you know, perhaps it's boring to say the same thing again and again from China, was that the very effective way that they managed to keep their uh, infection level so low, less than 0.05% of their population, was by 
very widespread mass testing of the general population, symptomatic or asymptomatic, in the areas which were seen to be effective. And that way, having a very good sight of exactly who has the virus, of isolating those people, not at their own houses, but socially, where they could be taken care of, escalated to higher levels of care if they need to, but multiply tested to make sure they're safe before discharge, as opposed to the UK, where, as we are well aware, large numbers of people were discharged to make space in our overcrowded hospitals into healthcare settings. So we've done many, many, many things that are wrong, and we're still not getting the basics right, which are the basics are mass testing, tracking and tracing of, of individuals. And we know that all of those things have been farmed out to private contracts for hugely lucrative contracts if the Tories' remit coming into this government was simply to take the, 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 you know, the money of the state and to farm it out to their wealthy benefactors, they could not have done the job better. But that doesn't mean that those wealthy benefactors, these companies who have been charged with providing PFI at huge cost, uh, uh, testing and tracing, are doing a good job. They're doing a very poor job. And I was speaking to several colleagues who were GPs uh, over the weekend. They feel incensed, but also, you know, powerless, really, that their expertise, that their knowledge of their patient base, their knowledge of uh, the virus, their knowledge of the way in which it would spread, the knowledge of the best ways to control and contain it, are being sidestepped in favor of national structures over which they have no control, because this essentially is the ongoing agenda of making sure that money is passed to the private sector, we talked last week, and the last point I'll make before handing back to you, George, we talked last week about the reduction in capacity of the NHS, the way it was constantly uh, at virtually 100% uh, capacity by design. And we've had yet more news that, in fact, Epsom and St. Hillier hospitals, two hospitals in southeast London, serving a large uh, population base of around a million, million and a half people, themselves are due to have all of their acute facilities taken away and then concentrated in a third facility, which will again involve a downgrading of overall capacity and a downgrading of the overall care for that population. So even in the midst of a pandemic, the same uh, uh, furrow is being ploughed by this government, the, the furrow of privatisation and downgrading our services, which led us to this situation in the first place, George. Just to uh, uh, balance the point about Oldham and Muslim families, uh, we had an item on, uh, on our news bulletin just moments ago uh, about uh, an outbreak in Aberdeen, uh, which is, was located to a single pub and a single hotel. Um, I mean, no one actually knows when they're going about their business, either to work or to shop or to socialize in pubs and so on. No one knows uh, who there has got this and might give it to them or which surface uh, they're touching. Uh, from which they might pick it up. Isn't that true? It's absolutely true, and it shows you how poor so many of the protocols that we're trying to put in place. The, the travel industry are frantically trying to reopen you know, all of their tourist destinations. Um, they're having a lot of difficulties with that. But some of the protocols you're being asked to follow, to have one test, one COVID swab test, within two weeks of traveling, at great personal expense, greater expense than the ticket, but essentially, that's, it's meaningless, George. If you've had a test two weeks ago, in that, in that two-week time before you take the flight, no one can say you have or haven't you know, con contracted COVID. And, and as a kind of proof of that, uh, United States, as we know, has got mass pandemic, really running out of control. There was a paper that my wife read to me just as I was driving uh, today. Um, it was from the United States CDC Journal. 
and it was a study of their camp, their, their holiday camp system. As you know, they have very long holidays in the United States, three months, but the parents, workers, have very little holiday, sometimes as little as two weeks. So, as we know, 52 million are unemployed now, but those who are lucky enough to be in a job have very little in the way of holiday break, and they get over this by actually sending their children almost you know, uh, routinely to, to holiday camps, so for periods away with other children. Um, there was a holiday camp in Georgia, uh, which had, I think, around uh, 15,000 uh, young children. All of them had had COVID swabs, as well as the staff, prior to going there. Uh, uh, one week into having the camp, someone came down with a fever and symptoms. They were diagnosed as being COVID, and it was rapidly established that actually, uh, ultimately, the whole camp was tested that more than 44% of that entire camp had got COVID. So, without very regular mass testing, it's impossible when it's rife in the community to know who has and who hasn't got it. And yes, unquestionably, there have been instances of COVID spreading from pubs, COVID spreading in workplaces where people can't socially distance, abattoirs, sweatshops, you know. But it's always, you know, certain insinuations are made. I mean, in India, it's very common um, that they're talking about spreading from mosques, spreading from the Muslim community, because that fits with the political agenda of the Modi government. Here, you'd like to think that we've moved beyond that point, but there's a, there's a, a subculture which is very much likes to have a scapegoat and uh, someone to blame who's a soft target. I, I don't accept that one particular part of the community is to blame. If I was going to point the finger at one particular part of the community, really, it would be the government, the governmental response, the lack of, you know, placing adequate measures in a timely fashion. We had months. A lot, a lot of is being made out of this alleged one-week delay that China may have had between convincing themselves that this was uh, a virus which spread from person to person when they first identified it and notifying the world. It's really negligible. We've had months of delay and prevarication when it's quite clear that the overall strategy of our government was and probably remains herd immunity. They talked about not letting the NHS become overwhelmed. So what they want is a slow burn of steady infections where people get the infection and then hopefully generate some kind of immunity. But that means we will have that very large number of predicted deaths, which caused such panic and, and kind of debate at the beginning of our first lockdown, but they'll happen slowly. And sure enough, if you look this week, we have had again more than 400, perhaps 450 deaths. Our R rate is coming back up, probably is one or an excessive one in some areas. So that means it's staying at a steady state. And the signs are that across the board, all across the country, the rate of infection is increasing. And then if you look again uh, at the ONS um, antibody survey, now the antibody is slightly equivocal because we've seen studies that show that after three or four months, if you retest someone who's had COVID, there have been instances in which that becomes negative. So we're not absolutely sure how long the antibodies stay around. But at the moment, it's our best idea of who has had COVID and who hasn't. If you have an antibody test and it's positive, it indicates you've had COVID. And based on their survey now on a large number of households, uh, I think uh, on, uh, I haven't got the exact numbers, I, as I recall, it was about 40,000 households surveyed. Currently, the thinking is that there's only six, six and a half percent of the population who have had COVID. So there's still a long way to go. And the last bit of news, perhaps, which is very worrying, is that as furlough is basically wound down, we know there have been two million people who are considered very high risk, 600,000 of them 
uh, who generally work, who have been asked to shield. Now, those 600,000 considered very high, high risk. Once their furlough is removed, it's extremely likely that if they don't return to work, they'll lose their job. So they'll be under tremendous personal economic pressure to put themselves on the line at a time when we know the R rate's increasing, infection rates are increasing, and what are they to do? We talk, talked about this as, a, this as a compromise between the economy and safeguarding health. It doesn't have to be that way, George. We know 330 billion was gifted to business in this furlough scheme, but as they're throwing these people really back into a high-risk situation, there's talk of giving 750 million to charity. 750 million sounds like a lot of money. When Captain Tom marches and raises 20, 30 million, it sounds like a lot of money. But compared to the economic cost of life of hundreds of thousands and millions of people, it's a drop in the ocean. And quite clearly, the relief of this government is all aimed at business. It's all aimed at their cronies, at looking after their friends in the city, and looking after the private contractors who are eager for contracts. And it's not aimed at looking after the common working class of this country. And it's for that reason that the common working class are skeptical of the entire rationale between all, behind all of the actions of the government and find themselves questioning even whether the virus exists and whether they, how they're being toyed with, how their lives are being played with in this way, George. Finally, and I'm grateful for your time, Doctor, uh, two questions I was asked to ask you. Does hydroxychloroquine work treating the virus? And is doxycycline effective in treating post-COVID patients? So th thanks, George. So, hydroxychloroquine is an, essentially an anti-malarial drug uh, that's been used for many, many years. I've taken I used it to take it. I, I used to take it in malarial areas. Yeah, and it used to be, you know, the, the, the really primary medication, anti, uh, along with paludrin, perhaps, in, in resistant areas. I used to take it as well when I went, went to India. It's very bitter, a uh, pill to swallow. It's not much fun to take. And certainly after, if I went for long periods of time to India, I probably wouldn't take it because uh, uh, of the effects that it has. One of the, the main um, side effects that people are very worried about is a, a prolonged QT syndrome. So essentially it, it interferes with the electrical conduction of your heart. And in patients who were given it on a trial, and it was published in the journal, uh, the JAMA, the J J American Journal uh, of Medicine, JAMA, um, uh, there was a trial that was published that essentially showed it didn't have much, or, or if any, protective effect against COVID, but it did have a high rate of cardiac side effects that actually made it more dangerous to take. Um, uh, I've had a friend who had a colleague take in India and in fact had those cardiac effects. So my overall feeling with uh, uh, hydroxychloroquine, I think Trump pushed it very hard because it was cheap and available. Uh, he said he was taking it for a while before he gave it up. But I think uh, the, the verdict on hydroxychloroquine is that it, it doesn't work. Uh, it's dangerous. Uh, medication to take, certainly on a mass scale unnecessarily, though it, clearly it has its role in treating malaria. It doesn't have a role in treating COVID. I think the other drug you asked me was... Doxycycline. Fine. So doxycycline is essentially a tetracycline antibiotic. Um, it has had some effects against, interestingly, dengue fever. And so it interferes. It's not just purely an antibiotic that works against bacteria. It can affect protein synthesis of some viruses. So I think there's been speculation that it might be a, a drug to use. I have not seen um, any trial or any evidence showing that it is effective um, against uh, uh, COVID. I have seen a couple of letters indicating that it might be worth trying, perhaps taking as a prophylactic, but it's at this stage purely theoretical and speculative and hasn't been proven. So I don't think at this stage there's any evidence to uh, suggest that it's effective either, George.
Well, we'll keep uh, uh, asking uh, you these things because you are uh, the highly respected Moats medic. Thank you very much indeed, Dr. Ranjit Bra, uh, who has been with us right from the beginning of this crisis. And no doubt the crisis has some distance still to run. Should the senior Tory MP arrested over rape claims be suspended? A, yes, 65%. B, no, 22%. And C, B, named 13%. You can vote now on my Twitter feed. It'd be interesting why people think they should not be suspended. 22% of you so far, almost uh, a quarter. Um, uh, John says, suspended, you'll probably get promoted. And Ellen says, people are innocent until proven guilty. At this stage, there's not even a charge, just an accusation which the police will investigate. It is wholly unfair to suspend someone at this stage. People want to destroy this guy on the basis of accusation alone. Stalinist dream. And Paul says you can't suspend the Prime Minister. Well, it's definitely not the Prime Minister because he's not in his 50s. And Joe says maybe he was named in Epstein's little black book. Keep up the great work, George. And Alex says unless there is evidence to proceed with a prosecution, then no, the law needs to apply to all without prejudice. And John says no, one, he hasn't yet been charged, two, it would likely reveal the identity of his alleged victim. And Dennis says simply put in any other organization other than the royal family, obviously, he would have been suspended. Well, actually, Prince Andrew has more or less been suspended. And Frank on YouTube says, if you take the COVID vaccine, why worry about those who don't? You're safe. Well, that is, of course, uh, debatable. Let me take a quick break, and then it's your turn on calls. Radio Sputnik. Tune in every Wednesday to Loud and Clear with Brian Becker and John Kiriakou for a regular segment called Beyond Nuclear, where Brian and John discuss nuclear issues, including weapons, energy, waste, and the future of nuclear technology in the United States with Kevin Camps, the radioactive waste watchdog at the organization Beyond Nuclear. Listen on Wednesdays right here on Radio Sputnik. Want to talk? Get in touch with us at radio at sputniknews.com. We are talking 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You are listening. We give you the most essential out of the endless information space. Radio Sputnik, telling the untold. Radio Sputnik. We speak your language. Find us at sputniknews.com. Hello, America. It is me, Joe Biden. I think I'm not reading a teleprompter. I'm perfectly capable of speaking for myself. Very sorry. 
Uh, I think that Jesse Ventura would set the presidential election campaign alight, Romwell. What's your view? Uh, yeah, I'd love to see Ventura winning again. Both Biden and Trump, because I have a friend um, um, who hates Donald Trump and it's through their feelings, but I have a feeling that Biden will, will uh, to take in Kamala, especially, um, will take us to the war. So I take Ventura. Me too. To my... even, even though he's actually the only one of them who has actually been in a war uh, and is uh, special forces soldier, veteran, uh, no less. Thanks, uh, Romwell. Uh, just because of the hour, I need to race on. Ian in Hounslow is up next in London. Go ahead, Ian. Uh, hello, George. Hi. You, you put the question out about why people do not think that the senior Tory MP should be named. No, should be suspended, is the suspended. question. Suspended. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, now, there are two cases that I refer to. That is the case of Christopher Jeffries and Colin Stagg, both completely innocent people whose lives were destroyed yeah. by being falsely accused of some of the most heinous sexual crimes and offences. And the perpetrators turned out to be other people completely. Yeah, very uh, good point. Yeah. Very good you point. are innocent until proven guilty. Yeah, but that's true of every, uh, of every offender, but you're uh, not left anonymous. Yeah, but I if think I was the... if I was charged with something this evening, uh, I'd still be innocent until proven guilty, but I'd also be named. I think the blackness of the crime is so severe and so socially unacceptable. I think it destroys your name uh, completely for the rest of your life. Well, I agree with that. I mean, I'm in favour of people so accused uh, retaining their anonymity pending a conviction if one happens. Uh, and uh, because at this moment, uh, people can, uh, of course, I'm not saying in this case, but people can make false accusations against people. They remain anonymous forever. Uh, but the person falsely accused and sometimes not even charged, but uh, uh, acquitted at trial uh, is named for life. I agree with that. Now, there's an article here by Dame Vera Bird about the appalling lack of successful prosecutions for rape. Um, and I've actually spoke to a defence lawyer who defends such people, and she's told me that the papers are so poorly uh, prepared by the CPS, the cases are so badly presented, because the funding's been cut to the bone for austerity, that the, the funding for the lawyers, for the whole infrastructure to mount this prosecution has just been taken away. That's true. I mean, you hear that all the time, and uh, there's no doubt that it is highly dangerous to the justice system uh, when, uh, when the legal profession in that field, there are other fields where they're still doing very well indeed, uh, but in the criminal justice system, uh, the uh, pairing back and back and back of, uh, of legal aid, for example, is leaving uh, many people who need defence uh, without it. Well, I just wanted to put that, uh, George. I just think we need to be very careful, that's all. Good point, Ian. Thanks all right, uh, very much indeed. Let's hear from Brian 
in Glasgow on a different subject, but still legal uh, related. Brian, go ahead. Hi, George. Good to hear from you. And you, sir. Uh, I'm really wanting to sort of discuss what, for me, is the biggest elephant in the room when they all discuss wokeness or progressive or any structural bias. Mm -hmm. It amazes me after 20 years of experiencing it at the worst end. But mm -hmm. it's a fact to say, for example, you're a, a person you had earlier on, the human rights lawyer, if he were to disagree what I'm about to say, I'm sure I could disprove that to be the case if he was to disagree. And that is that none of us as men anywhere have a human right to have parental rights to our children. Mm. And no children have a parental right or responsibility to have a father. No, and I agree. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a big father of uh, uh, f Fathers for Justice. It's uh, one of the most egregious blots on, our, uh, on the landscape of our legal system. Uh, it is uh, shameful uh, that uh, a f the father of a child has less rights uh, than the boyfriend of the child's mother who may have become the boyfriend last evening uh, and uh, can have access to one's children immediately and without any uh, kind of scrutiny, uh, whereas the father of a child uh, may have to go through uh, endless legal battles just to see uh, their children. Uh, and uh, I think the epidemic of fatherlessness in our country is a major factor in criminality. It's a major factor in dysfunctionality uh, of uh, family life. Uh, every child has a right to a father, and every father has not just a right, but an obligation to okay. properly be a father. What do you say? I absolutely. George, I would go further and say, I can tell you when all of that began, it's axiomatic. The law was feckless with regard to fatherhood. Roughly about 150 years ago, I think we've all been uh, deceived. I don't know how many legislators in current parliament, I would uh, declare that they are fraudulently claiming compatibility when seeking royal assent, such as acts as the Children Act, the hate crime legislation, the 2006 Family Law Scotland Act, which my uh, case, which also we can't refer to directly because of the other stringent uh, deliberate uh, uh, suppression of discovery by the public who have not experienced family court system. That all for me is a proof that the legislators and the wider legislative community are fully aware that they are actually in contempt of their laws in my view, well, yeah, I don't, I, I don't know uh, about that, but uh, I have got to agree with you that the family court system uh, is a dismal failure. Uh, there is a uh, presupposition, I was going to say predisposition, but it's more than that. There is the presupposition uh, that the, uh, first of all, the mother is the virtually automatic uh, primary carer and that the father has to climb through a remarkable number of hoops, even in order to see their own children. Even when well, their I... children were growing up with them, uh, mm -hmm. when the mother took off. And she may have George. taken off for a good reason or yeah. a bad reason. 
George, I think the interference really much as anything else. And what you're referring to is the tender years doctrine, which was introduced roughly 150 years ago. And think about that before we even got the vote for citizens, as they cry, we were in, we are institutionally racist. Speaking of a time when none of us had a vote to declare what our country did in our name, and now we are still all institutionally denied fatherhood, whether we see it or not. And this idea that it's just this or that, that requires to the current system to be interfered the checks and balances. And when you ask me if it's fraud, when you seek royal assent from the Queen and do not declare that an act is not compatible with ECHR, which they clearly did, uh, then you have not blocked yourself from royal assent, but you've denied something that, for me, <clears throat> not doing what you honestly legal advice telling you the opposite. Well, I'll tell, what what, uh, I'll, tell, I'll tell you what, Brian, uh, because the hour is late, we can't do this justice, but I promise you, yeah. if the people through the glass are listening, we will deal. Uh, if you could get my friend on from Fathers for Justice next week, that would be helpful. Thank you. Uh, here's Mark in North Carolina. Go ahead, Mark. Hey, hey, what's up, uh, George? Yeah, nice, um, nice to hear from yeah, you. I'm on the road ahead. now. Oh, I, I don't know how clear I'm coming in because I'm on the road. I'm driving. But anyway, um, I just think, you know, with the coronavirus and all that, I'm not sure what I believe right now because a lot of these new cases are asymptomatic and um, most people, you know, aren't even getting sick. So I really don't know what the deal is there. But I tell you this, what really bothers me is these mask laws. And you see different laws. I just drove through South Carolina before, and nobody's, very few people are wearing masks there, including in the stores. Uh, I stopped at a rest stop there, you know, uh, like a convenience store, and the employees weren't wearing masks. Some people from the road were. But the thing that gets me is this. These masks are not healthy. I, you know, I wore them just for a few minutes to go to the store or something like that. Makes you feel sick. Okay, now I'll tell you what happened to a friend of mine. Uh, well, not to him, but a friend, a guy he works with. I told you I used to work in a prison in Texas, right? Yeah. Right? A uh, big prison, too, large. All right? Prison he's in, hardly anybody's coming down with this, even even unsymptomatic, all right, which is surprising because when you look at what a prison really is. But one thing that did happen is an officer fell out right in the middle of the day room, okay? Right in, fell out of the day room from the mask. What he did, he went to um, he went to the, the warden. He went to his doctor first. The doctor said he shouldn't be wearing a mask. The warden says, no, that's unacceptable. Everybody's got to wear a mask, you know, or he'll be written up. So he went to Hunts. He went to the district office, and then he went to Huntsville, which is the head of the Texas Department of Criminal Justice, which really the Department of Corrections Prison, you know, like you, you'd call prison officers, okay? And they said, no, he doesn't have to wear a mask, okay? So they finally, because uh, you know. So what they finally agreed on is that he would work only outside a perimeter patrol mm. and and a tower. Well, that's a fair okay. uh, compromise, Mark. Uh, I wear a mask. I wear a mask all the time, and it's never made me sick. Now it might not be protecting me 100 percent, 90 percent, 70, 60, maybe even 50, 40, 30, or 20 percent. But if it's protecting me at all, I'm going to keep wearing it. Thanks for the call. Darwish is in Nairobi. So we have to go there. Darwish, go ahead. Hi, George. No, uh, we've nice. never had a call from Nairobi before. Go ahead. Thank you, George. Thank you for picking up the phone, uh, taking my call. I appreciate that. I'm a big fan of yours, George. Thank you, sir. And uh, 
I want to ask you about yeah, Malik Obama. He's a guy, uh, Barack Obama's half-brother. He's uh, a citizen of Kenya, but he's also a naturalized citizen of America. And he's just written a book, and uh, he doesn't have anything nice to say about former president of the United States, Barack wow. Obama. This, yeah, and this guy is basically saying, this is what he's saying, George. He's saying Barack Obama doesn't want to have anything to do with the family back home in Kenya. You know, he's the guy, he's the face of democracy, uh, progress, but, you know, he's a socialist, he's, you know, he cares about the little guy, but this guy abandoned his own family, and his family lives in a poverty-stricken neighborhood in Nairobi. Well, look, it's, it's, has, it's all, obviously the season for um, family members to write books about other family members. I told you earlier I'm reading the the one at the moment, which is uh, top of the New York Times bestseller list uh, by Donald Trump's niece. So now you're telling me we've got a half-brother of Barack Obama writing. Frankly, there's nothing he could say about Barack Obama that would surprise me. But what's his name again, Darwish? And we'll look out for it, try and get it reviewed. Well, George, I appreciate that. You know, Barack Obama basically uh, a fraud. He, you know, he abandoned yeah. his own family. He looked, he looked good in a tan suit. That's all you could say for him. No doubt about it. But, George, thank you for taking my call. I'm a big fan of Ken Livingstone, big fan of George Galloway. I, you know, I've always admired you guys. I'm from Nairobi. I've spent some time in the U.K. And thank you. Also some, thank you. I'm a big fan of yours. Thank, God thank bless you. God bless call. you, Darwish. Thank you very much indeed. Jerry is in Sutton uh, in the greater London area. Jerry, go ahead. Oh, hello, George. Uh, thank you very much for taking my call. Very much appreciate it. Uh, I wonder if I could just discuss briefly the, the, what's happening with our hospitals in southwest London. Uh, and in fact, what's, what's happening throughout the country with the government deciding that we are going to have a huge reduction in, in hospitals. Uh, how it affects us in southwest London is we're, we're going down from five hospital, uh, sorry, five major acute hospitals down to three. Or, or two. Now, what's happening is uh, our two local hospitals, St. Helia and Epsom Hospital, are being. The proposal is to downgrade them and to have a new acute unit built in the Belmont area, which is somewhere in between, but not quite. Now, that will mean a, a loss of 552 beds going from the uh, 1,048 down over the two hospitals down to 496 at Belmont. Now, how can, that even, how can that even work, Jerry? How can you pour a, a, a quart into a pint pot? Well, you can't because obviously what's going to happen, it's going to be like being on a motorway, uh, going from three lanes down to two. You're going to get questioned. You're going to have people queuing up outside... Uh, hospital and ambulances at busy times. You're going to have people queuing up in corridors. At the moment, uh, Croydon Hospital, which is operating normally at around 101% of its capacity, which means it's, uh, it's over-prescribed. It's, people are waiting in, very often waiting in corridors there anyway. When this happens with there, they close the A&E the, the and they send their patients to, to St. Helia, which means the patients that 
would go there, and now I'm going to have to go somewhere else when St Helier closes its doors to A&E. Incidentally, uh, what, we, what, we, what we stand to lose are A&E, consultant-led maternity, intensive care, I'm reading from something, please excuse me, mm. children's inpatient care, emergency surgery, emergency medicine, medicine, coronary care and cancer care. All these things are going to go from St Helier and Epsom hospitals to be, to be replaced by a smaller unit with, they say, 496 acute beds. Now, what they do is they say, and this is where they're misleading people, George, is they say, we're going to have four beds more than what we currently have. Because what they're doing is that they're including beds that won't be used for acute purposes. Beds that will still be remaining at the two hospitals that, that, that will be used for what I think they call step down or, 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 or for people to re or recovery. But they won't be acute beds. There will be a reduction, there will be a huge reduction in consultants. There will be no consultant-led maternity at these places. Which, which, which is, is a drastic cut for, for women that, that, that no. are, are, are giving birth and, and, and will now have to travel from Epsom or, or as far away as, as Merton, uh, which also uses St Helier in many parts. And some of the parts of Merton are some of the most deprived areas. Yes, and indeed. People, and indeed, that's true. Just, uh, I, I, need to, uh, uh, I need to move on, but not because what you're saying is not important. Uh, I know St Helier's very well. Uh, Ranjit, Dr. Ranjit uh, mentioned it earlier. It's something that we will keep uh, an eye on. Uh, and I think he made the point powerfully uh, that the, the reason, I mean, St. Helier, for example, is on a prime piece of real estate. What are they going to do? Knock down the hospital and turn it into luxury uh, home development? I suspect so. Uh, maybe I'm being uh, unfair, but I, but I doubt it. Uh, now, Got to clear the decks because there's a legend on the line. It's Norma in Bristol on the House of Lords. Norma. Hello, George. Now, um, was that unfair on the House of Lords? Do you think? No, I think I think that you know the list, the honours list by Boris Johnson was awful. But bigger than that, these peers they get about three hundred and five pounds a day, travel allowance, and reduced restaurant facilities. <coughs> and they also get, uh, they also can claim uh, for uh, overnights. Well, I mean, the thing is, it's an honour, and you know, you can voluntarily attend. And all I give them be a free lunch and some travel allowance. You see, many people they wouldn't earn that in a week, and it's criminal. It's not just a quaint little organisation. And there's thousands of them, Norma. Well, if we well, it's eight hundred. It's eight hundred, isn't it? it? Yeah, but I mean, if you if you include all the uh, the hereditary peers uh, who don't oh, have votes yeah. anymore, but are more than uh, more than uh, welcome to attend, and no one could stop them attending, if mm. they all turned up, uh, you simply the, the the walls would burst. You couldn't get them all in. Yeah, but I, it's just obscene, really, the amount of money. I really don't like it. But the other thing, George, very quickly, is that. Um, you know the nuclear weapons, and the man told us about the different things, yeah. the professor. But it's, I mean, I shouldn't, I am pushing campaign for nuclear disarmament because they try so hard to educate people, and they're given very little media coverage. And all we hear is, 
just more money for more weapons of mass destruction. And, um, you know... It well, uh, I've got to tell you, it's a melancholy duty uh, that we did invite the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament, oh. CND, uh, but they refused to come on the show. That, oh, that's They refused to come on the show because, because I had voted once uh, for uh, Nigel Farage and his Brexit party. This is a campaign mm. fighting against nuclear weapons that ought to be accepting anybody Absolutely. that wants to <laughs> make the case against nuclear weapons. They refused to come on this show. That's why I... we had to get Dr. Boyle from the United States of America. So shame on CND. Yeah. Shame well, on CMD, them. They yeah, betrayed I... all the activists in the country. Shame on them. They've betrayed the victims uh, of nuclear war and potential victims. I'm like you, Norma. I've, I've done a lot over the years for CND, but nothing further, I'm afraid. I'll support the campaign, but not their campaign. Yeah. yeah guess one funny little story, George. Yeah. Have I got time? Yeah. Um, I had this follower last night on my Twitter account, and she was a porn star. So I thought, well, I've no interest in you. <laughs> so I got a friend, another follower, who just showed me how to block her. But... Um, I thought that was really funny. Why would a porn star be interested in my Twitter account? The whole country, indeed, the whole world, is following this show. And you are a central pillar of this show. <laughs> you are the last of the legends. Uh, we've either banned or lost our other legends. They may have passed on uh, to the mother of all talk shows in the sky. But you're still standing. Norma, thee and me, and yeah. long may it continue. God bless you, and keep your, uh, keep your account blocked from any uh, porn stars. Well, it's been marvelous uh, for me. I hope it was for you. I do hope that you are buying my uh, debut novel, by the way, which is available on Amazon uh, and all good uh, sites like that. You can even get it directly from me, and I will sign it. It's a story of World War II that might well have been. If you're watching uh, The Plot Against America uh, on Sky Atlantic, you'll get the kind of drift. See you next week at the same time, same place.